This is an ABC podcast. Well, this crept up on me, I have to confess, when I was just alerted earlier this week to the fact that it's the one-year anniversary since Australia and I suppose probably most of the world went into lockdown to respond to COVID-19. And that gives us a lot of food for thought um, here on The Minefield. Welcome to the show. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Well, Ed Ali's my name. Scott Stevens is mine. Uh, sorry, he's his. Um, <laughs> geez, we're becoming the it same person. It can be person. yours too, Elite. I, uh, I don't mind. That's quite that's an okay. appropriation. Um, I, can I <laughs> confess something, Scott? Obviously, I live in Melbourne, so I spent a lot of time in lockdown over mm. 2020. And I had to confess to my colleagues uh, the other day that I could not remember the first day of lockdown. Hmm. Like, if you asked me, what was it like? Do you remember that, like, you know, that, that old thing about sitting around your grandkids talking about the pandemic that you lived through? I, I can't remember the first day. I remember the experience of the whole thing, obviously. I remember that hmm. feeling of COVID coming as a loom, you know, this tsunami that was about to wipe you away and you didn't exactly know what it was. Like, I remember all of that, but I don't remember that feeling of, right, day one of lockdown, here it is. Uh, which is very strange, it seems to me, because it feels like it should be some kind of seismic event, but it kind of wasn't experienced that way. As as little as a year on, I don't remember that moment. Yeah, I'm in much the same position. I mean, what I remember quite vividly, though, was the uncertainty in the weeks leading up to it about just yeah. what exactly this would mean for work arrangements, for instance, or the kids attending school. I mean, that I remember quite vividly. I remember a mad one-week rush on this show. Maybe our listeners don't even realize kind of what happened. But we had to record four programs over the course of a few days in order to cover the fact that we most likely, this is what we were being told, we most likely weren't going to be able to get back into studio for some months. Mm. Um, uh, we had and discussions so, on this show about the possibility did. of foregoing treatment <laughs> so that you might die so that other people would receive treatment. Do you remember that? I remember that vividly. Like, that, they, these are the kinds of scenarios that we were contemplating. It was all very dark. Yeah. I think one of the things that it does reflect is that uh, certainly compared to other nations, Australia has been mercifully spared the worst of it. Certainly if you see the death tolls, if you see the economic Effects. If you see the vast disparity uh, of both medical treatment that's been available, the disproportionate effect on certain demographic ethnic communities, for instance, you know, I mean, there's a great deal, I think, to be thankful for. But there was so much uncertainty in March. Again, this is what I was actually reflecting on the other day. At the end of February, I don't know if you recall this, Willie, but the two of us attended a conference in Melbourne. We recorded a live show at the fourth... Uh, yeah, exactly. The fourth Australasian political philosophy conference, uh, which seems like a different world now because it was a relatively well-attended room. It was a wonderful gathering of interesting people. And it was just a couple of weeks after that, then suddenly things really began to change. And I think that's where there were these looming premonitions. You even You even proposed to me that we ought to do a show about the coronavirus. And I think I remember responding to you fairly, not exactly dismissively, but maybe prematurely, oh, I'm not really sure we're there yet. I don't mm. think it's that interesting a topic quite yeah, what, yet. What would we say, I think? What would we say? <laughs> oh, my Lord. And then suddenly that's 
pretty much all we talked about for a number of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that, well, that I remember very vividly when we were trying to record a number of shows that tried to sketch out some of the questions that we might be preoccupying ourselves with and yet not knowing what the death toll at that stage was going to be, what the duration was going to be. One of the things that we really did exercise ourselves about very early on was the effect that social distancing was going to have on our civic culture. Mm. Uh, We had a great long discussion with the sociologist Eric Kleinenberg, who himself had just entered in to lockdown in New York City. And things were very grim, very, very dark. That, that of course, was towards the end of the New York winter, the beginning of, uh, of New York spring. And so he was in a very, very dark mood. It was also a bad line from what I can remember. And, and you know, we were worried very early on, what was the distance we were going to have to take from one another? What was that going to do on what I think can, we can charitably, charitably say is already a less than robust social fabric? That for me was one of the most prescient discussions that we had. The one that I remember, actually, it's funny you say bad line, because I think that's been one of the great legacies of COVID was the dropping of technical standards across media. Like the way you could watch television now and someone with a phone camera just pointed straight up their nose. That's good enough. We'll interview you like that. In what world would that have been imaginable? Um, So that's definitely a legacy that I think has been under-discussed in the past year. But the show I really remember doing, which I think leads us actually to where we're going today, um, was the one where we spoke about, was it habits of... Or forms of life or something like that. Oh, do, wow. do you remember like very early on? And I think it was as we had this feeling of everything slowing down yep. and us being forced to retreat into our homes and not do a lot of the things that made our lives so hectic, um, perhaps in a way that wasn't particularly fulfilling, even if it was capital P productive um, mm. in an economic sense, although maybe not even that to be honest. We had this discussion. I can't remember the phrase we used, but I think it might've been forms of living or something like that. Yeah. Good memory. And well, I remember it because I I remember suggesting that show because it was the, it was, I was just preoccupied with it. It was, I was obsessed with this idea that what do we come out of the other side? How do we come out the other side of this? Assuming there is another side of this, which is another question. How do we come out the other side transformed as people? Hmm. Individually, I suppose. Like, do we, heed those lessons and slow down a bit more and do our value systems change? But then, uh, you know, that becomes inflected socially. So what what does society look like? What, what does What's the meaning of society, of civility, of of politics? Like all of these sorts of things that I think were up in the air because there was this feeling that we don't know how deep this hole could get, but it feels like it could be a profoundly transformational moment that we might discover something about ourselves or about our condition or about our possible futures that we might wish to hang on to. Now, I think there's a very interesting discussion to be had about what effect this has all had on us as people and whether or not it's too early to say and all of that sort of stuff. But I still wonder if that's, that's the most profound question to have been asked um, and especially in a place like Australia, where, to be honest, we've not really experienced COVID in the way that experiencing COVID can work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, don't, I don't mean that with any disrespect to people who have suffered as a result, but the sheer magnitude of what's happened in so many places overseas compared to what we've been through is just incomparable. 
right? Yeah. Um, this has been a real baby pandemic for us. And if you compare it to Spanish flu, it's probably a baby pandemic for the world, you know, when you compare the ravages that that virus uh, unleashed. So has it been deep enough for us to go through any kind of transformation? And politics is a really interesting area to look at in that because uh, do you remember that really sweet moment? There was like a sweet spot where politics and media and all of these things seemed to be realising the best version of themselves. And there was polling showing that trust in these institutions had just taken off and unions were sitting around with a coalition government talking in glowing terms about each other as they were hammering out responses to the impending yeah. recession, which of course now we know has ended in nothing really as far as I can tell. Um, with the industrial relations legislation that was put forward, I think, dying uh, in the parliament last week. So Hmm. there was just that moment, I think, of possibility. There was a big question mark. And is it fair to say that today's our attempt to take stock and see what the answer to that question is, at least thus far? Yes, I think so. Um, I would say, and here I've got a question for you, if you don't mind. So for those who maybe are new to the show and aren't aware of the dynamics of the program, Waleed, you're in Melbourne. I'm in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brisbane's had a couple periods of lockdown or of um, of relative social isolation. Uh, they've been pretty minor, I think, compared to both Sydney and Melbourne. You had a double dip there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had one extended period of lockdown and then relative freedom and then another extended period of lockdown. Which was crucially different, by the way. Yes. Because but, but, it was but on why? our own. So the first lockdown was quite sweet, I thought. Yeah. Because the whole world was doing it. You were seeing videos from, you know, Southern Europe of people doing things in their apartments. Serenading one another from balcony to balcony. Yeah, or just entertaining themselves with sock puppets they'd made or whatever. There was a sense of global solidarity, really, because it was a global problem and we were going through a common global experience that was so alien to all of us. Hmm. Um, the Melbourne one was different. The, the thing I remember hearing more than anything else was people talking about, I can't look at my social media feeds with all my friends from other states posting photos of themselves at the beach or something yeah. like that. Right? So it was the feeling of isolation. Isolation is, I don't want to use that word because I feel like that connotes something um, specific to quarantine and things like that. It was the, it was the feeling of being an exception, that you were hmm. being uniquely um, restricted I think that changed a lot of things. And at that time, Melbourne had the harshest lockdown in the world, really. Yeah, that's Apart right. maybe from Argentina or something. Mm. So it, it, there wasn't the solidarity. The solidaristic elements of lockdown one weren't there. And then there was the uncertainty about how it ended and was going to end. And I, I will say this peculiar to myself as a broadcaster. Um, I broadcast this and I broadcast a television show. They're both national. And so it was a really tricky experience because mm. you're living through something really intense, but not shared by the majority of your audience. And so to what extent can you and do you reflect this thing that you're going through while there's a whole country out there that's kind of looking on to it as a curiosity, but doesn't really want it inflecting everything, even at it, as it is inflecting everything in your life so deeply. So it was a fundamentally different experience, I think, that second mm. lockdown. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Because, I mean, one of the things you and I are, are are very different in a whole lot of ways. I am, I would say, a near pathological introvert. I mean, I really, <laughs> genuinely don't like most people. Um, <laughs> I mean, truly, I'm not. I I don't feel feel ill towards them. I don't think I'm misanthropic. I think I'm a genuinely sort of empathetic 
person. I, yeah. I do really care for people, but I could as long easily, as they leave you alone. As long as they leave me the hell alone, <laughs> yeah. I could go for days without speaking, much less without speaking to other people. So, to some extent, you know, being in a condition of isolation or lockdown, I'm I'm trying to find the downside of yep. this. Um, you, I think, have certain introverted tendencies. You do have a bit of a love of crowds. I think a bit more than I do. You you do. It seems to me that you do tend to get a little bit energized by occasions when you get to be on your own for a time. And yet even then I found, speaking with you during that second lockdown, it seemed to me that the experience of tedium, that's the only word that I can find, the experience of the tedium of it began to weigh. Um, it's just sort of notes I caught from you from time to time. And I'm wondering the extent <laughs> to which in Melbourne, that sense of, okay, we were through this before, the fact that there was a light at the end of the tunnel, the fact that we were in this together, there was something about that that gave this a telos, that gave, us, that gave it a point. It meant that even though we were isolated, we were isolated in the service of a greater cause. Whereas that second one, and the fact that the Victorian government kept moving the post, the fact that for weeks upon end, the numbers of the infected kept going up and up and up, and there was no real clear uh, mechanism apart from just doubling down on the lockdown that seemed to be an effective strategy for dealing with that. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me that the tedium, the pointlessness, the ateleology of it kind of hit a bit more from time to time. Yeah, except there was also, in a way, a much sharper teleology because, or telos, because the numbers were so big. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you wake up and it's like 725 cases today, which admittedly yeah. in global terms would be nothing, but for our country was a very big deal. It did kind of give you a purpose at the same time, but you're right about the, I think the timelessness was a big deal. Um, everyone who goes through lockdown, I've noticed this throughout the world. The thing they talk about a lot is how every day blurs into every other day and you can't remember when anything happened because it's all Mm. just like one long day. And I think that has to do with our sociality, right? So I, I, there are certain elements of me that are introverted like you, but I think on balance, I'm an extrovert. When I do all those quizzes you meant to do online to figure out what you are, I come out with an E, right? So Is that right? Yeah. I I, I think that's changing over time, I've got to say, as I become grumpy, but I think- are you are you mellowing and grumpifying with age? Are you? Uh, I don't know if I'm mellowing, but I'm grumpifying. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I think so. Hence the Stadler and Waldorf show we did a few weeks ago. But I think I, I like that sort of thing that, that the energy of being with other people that I like, right? But the thing about that is that these are social markers. There are social rituals that are involved in that. There's the greeting of people. There's the saying goodbye. There's the exchanging stories about what you've been up to in the meantime, talking about ideas that are expressive of some kind of current event. All these things, apart from giving us a social grounding, they help us mark time. They help us demarcate days from days and weeks from weeks and months from months and seasons from seasons. Even the absence of sport for long stretches of the year um, made that difficult, right? Because these are part of the calendar, right? The, 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 act, the social clock has these sorts of features and suddenly they're not there. So the timelessness, I think, was, and part of that's just the tedium of lockdown, but part of that, I think, was the absence of all of the social markers that make life social, right? That make mm. human existence social. And so the question, I think, for us now, 12 months on, well, there's lots of questions, but one of them might be, what's happened to all that? 
have we become more or less social beings? Have we lost certain skills? Have we developed other social skills? What, what, what's become of the species, I suppose, as social beings uh, a year on and what would happen a year hence and five years hence and, and 10 years hence? Yeah, can I just up the ante on that one step further? I, I realize we're coming to speaking of marking time and the lack of undifferentiatedness <laughs> that's important mm. for genuine sort of progress and mental well-being. Uh, I realize that we are about to mark time on this particular program. Before we do, however, let me go even one step further than, than that. I think the dimension of our sociality, our inherent sociality, even for pathological introverts like me, I, I, I think that's, that's a very, very important dimension. But I think it's even more important when you reflect on the way that in a time of, I, I would say, particular social divisiveness. I don't think necessarily interpersonal divisiveness. I don't see any more conflict between people standing face to face with one another. Mm. But it seems to me that we are living in a period of ambient divisiveness, uh, that the mechanisms, mm. the impersonal sterile mechanisms through which we converse with one another, through which we form our opinions, by which we stake out our identities, uh, uh, through which we, we register or try to communicate our sense of loyalty or ideological or moral alignment, all of these things scream defi- divisiveness. Um, And it struck me at various times over the last few years that one of the few things that actually kept us together or that kept things from descending into other forms of violence were forms of what I think George Orwell would simply call common decency. Those forms of everyday quotidian politeness, the sympathetic glances from one side of the train to the other, those shared exchanges as you're walking into a building or receiving your coffee from somebody, those little forms of pleasantry, of politeness that communicate, I think, something morally really important. Mm. They communicate the worthwhileness of the person, a kind of gladness that this person is in the world. In an extreme form, I think these forms of politeness actually communicate a form of interpersonal or mutual dignity. I actually like you. I'm glad to have encountered you. And I think there's something about that that's, I think, both morally compelling but that's also dignifying. And so I think those forms of everyday quotidian habits, those little things that we do to reinforce the civic and social bonds between us. John Dewey, really importantly, I think, he described those everyday habits of exchange, the cultivating conditions that transform democracy from being an idea into a moral reality. And it's just struck me that during this time where we've been masked, where those facial gestures that are crucial to communicating a form of recognition and gladness that the other person is there in the world with you, during a time when we've been distanced and not being able to communicate with one another with particular forms of inflection and the nice tones whereby we communicate really important things uh, um, non-verbally to one another, during this time when we've been deprived of those things and even forms like embrace and handshakes, I, I've, I've been worried progressively that the lack of those habits has actually led to a cultivation of an experience, of a state of being in which certain things are back on the table that in more civil times would have been off the table. And I think one of the first things, one of the first experience that, experiences that presaged that for me was that big rush 
of panic buying, of canned goods and pasta and toilet paper before anybody else could get there before us. And then most recently, the rush on the part of many people to either get vaccinated before others or to attain something like a kind of immunological advantage over others in the form of access to public spaces, access to international travel. These are all the things that I think are ruled out, even when not ruled out by a moral principle like equity or turn-taking. But these are the things I think that are ruled out when we are living in an environment where we cultivate good civil relationships and recognize the importance of politeness, of tact, and of turn-taking. So for me, it's the absence of those daily interactions that I think have made us more prepared to embrace certain forms of behavior and more willing to indulge in certain forms of online behavior that may than maybe we would have when those various forms mm. of daily interaction were in full swing. There's a lot there. Like I think the online thing is a thing that's been building for a while. Um, as you were talking about the sort of increasingly rancorous, cantankerous nature of a lot of our engagement, I, I can't help but observe that uh, this really, really got... Um, very heated around May, late May yes, last year. True. And the George Floyd killing, I think, had a lot to do with that, obviously, just on its own terms. But it was also, particularly in the United States, you had a country of people, millions and millions and millions of people who spend a lot of their time on social media because it's, you know, that's there's a lot of saturation of social media in the United States, dealing with these quite provocative things that they're observing, but with no social outlet beyond yes, that, right? And right. so... Even aside from George Floyd, you started to see a lot of um, online activity that was just pummeling people, like just mm. over and over and over. And there was a real peak of that around May. So I think that part of that is is as you describe. Um, but do you, I, do, do you notice though, Waleed, that that whenever you're feeling, I, I don't know if you're like this, but when I get sort of really head up about the ideas or about the moral position, say, of a particular person. Mm. And, you know, I've, I've, I've had the rare, I've had the unenviable position of writing something really, really critical about someone that I met and debated the following day. Mm. And I found that the person's actual presence and hearing the inflection. Changes everything. Up, yeah. It changes yeah. everything. And so I, I, I think when you talk about these kind of this deep social divisiveness without the social outlet, but also without the modifying, moderating effect that talking about that with another person face-to-face necessarily has on the way that we formulate our moral positions. I think you're exactly right that 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 was something that was crucial that was missing. Then it tended to spiral. Yeah. But then the other thing is even the things that we would normally do to create those sort of those civic, civil mediators, if you like, shaking hands, yeah, etc., yeah. suddenly became vectors of health threat. So <laughs> it's true. Um, even an act like that could have been a provocative act. It was, a lot of these things were turned on their heads. I just want to pick up one thing before we get to the guests. Sure. And that is your idea of um, wanting to jump the queue for vaccines or whatever it is. I don't know that the problem there is that we haven't been seeing enough of each other lately. I think the problem there is one of an imagination that is bigger than our mind seems to be able to, to reach for. Um, so requiring an imagination that's bigger, I should say, um, that we see over and over again with global problems like climate change and so on. And that is that you need, in, in order to re- resist that temptation to jump the queue so I can travel, et cetera, um, you need to see this as a problem that besets the species and the globe and therefore not see it in nationalistic terms such that, well, what's the vaccine rollout in Australia doing right now? 
rather than, okay, well, how do we, who needs this the most and how can we bring this under the control the the quickest around the world for the benefit of everybody? So that kind of mutual exchange thing. And that's a difficult thing because I don't think we're very good at thinking beyond national borders. We're not even very good at thinking beyond our own cities' borders, as we discovered when one city went into lockdown and others didn't, right? So in other words, these things are not real to us in a way that um, real human interaction is, even in normal times. So to expect that they, like, I don't know that the pandemic has made these things less realisable. I think that they were never were really to us. They're artificial no, ways of us thinking as human yeah. beings. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I I think that's absolutely right. And I think when when I hear terms like vaccine nationalism, that's just another variation on plain old nationalism. Yeah. I think you're 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 absolutely right. I mean, the particular point that I was making though is actually within nations and even within societies. I mean, I'm oh, I'm generations. Actually, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm actually quite stunned by the extent to which there is a peculiar impatience for things to get back to normal, quote-unquote normal, such that the basic form of turn-taking that overcomes a person when, for instance, you're standing in line at the supermarket and someone with a smaller or who's carrying a baby or with a fewer groceries or, or, or something would like to go first or being able to you know, hold the door for somebody else. I, I, I think there are certain forms of basic civic interaction that says, I don't necessarily need to go first now mm. that are being swept away by, I, I really have to say, I know this is an exaggeration. I don't mean it to be too much of an exaggeration, but by Nothing more than I am so desperate to be able to eat out again. I'm so desperate to be able to have things, have certain comforts return to quote unquote normal that I'm willing to muscle ahead of those who I think have a much more morally compelling case Mm. to be willing to go first. I think it's that it's more that heedlessness that we try to school our children out of from a very early age uh, that has come to take effect once again, which concerns me deeply. Threat creates solidarity, but the solution seems to create a rush, like a rush. Exactly. (laughs) It's a very interesting dynamic. Exactly. This is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. It does exist, however, in other digital forms, such as as a podcast, uh, or you can listen anytime you like on the ABC Listen app. But if you want the podcast, you can just follow the minefield on whatever podcast platform it is that you use. Scott, double barrel today. Double barrel. That should give you a sense of just how serious this topic is. Uh, we're very, very grateful to have two guests because they've collaborated uh, quite remarkably on a wonderful book project called Recovering Civility During COVID-19, which kind of makes them the perfect guests to have in a conversation like this. Matteo Bernotti is Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at Monash University. Stephen Jack is also Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at Monash. We're very glad that they've joined us by Skype on the minefield. Stephen, Matteo, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you for the invitation. We are very grateful. So so look, let's, uh, well, Ed and I have kind of kicked around or dropped the idea of civility quite purposefully, but it's something that we were talking about a year ago this time. Uh, we've, we've, we've dropped this uh, without really coming close to defining what it is that we might mean by it. And it strikes me that in your most recent research, you've actually filled out civility in two quite meaningful directions. I mean, one would be, I think, the kind of quotidian 
direction that someone like John Dewey was very, very concerned about. Civility, not simply as politeness, but politeness with a morally communicative dimension to it. But also civility, I guess, in John Rawls's dimension as well, where civility becomes one of the ways in which we accommodate one another and one another's perspectives within a common civic and political community. Do you want to give us some idea about why, what you mean by civility and why you think that civility is the thing we really ought to be talking about uh, as we are approaching the end, God willing, uh, of this pandemic? I'll kick us off, Matteo, in the sense that, yeah, you know, we came at this project, you know, through a much larger study where, um, you know, funded by the University of Oklahoma and the Templeton Religious Trust in the United States. And we were approaching civility from this angle where we're looking at incivility in liberal democracies. You see so many allegations of people being uncivil in different ways, and they're often referring to the politeness dimension there. Um, and we just decided that, you know, civility is this concept that provides a lens for us to look at a bunch of key issues and challenges. And then ultimately, as you disaggregate it, we can come up with a way to identify the criteria to assess them and develop and justify better policies. Yes, if I can add to, to what Steve just said, I think what we what we noticed from the very beginning, also by surveying the literature, that, that there's often a lot of confusion about the meaning of civility. It, for the, for, for the very reason that emerged also from, from your previous conversation as Cotton Wallet, I mean, sometimes we think of civility about politeness, but sometimes we think about it in, in different terms. And Wallet mentioned the importance of thinking about the public interest, the global interest during the pandemic. It, it, that's what gave us this idea of referring to these different dimensions of civility as civility as public mindedness. But I think now when it comes to the politeness, understand your civility, this is very much something that a social scientist like you know, Steve perhaps can can talk about and explain why we found this especially interesting. Yeah, you know, you know, with the politeness dimension, it became so clear. You mentioned so many great examples in the introduction there about uh, how, how politeness has been challenged uh, during COVID-19. You know, you saw these kind of panic buying and, you know, these kind of fearful behaviors. And, you know, here in Australia, that took on the, the face of, you know, you know, stockpiling toilet paper, you know, grabbing all the baking flour you could. In the United States, I was kind of terrified. Well, that also involved stockpiling of guns and preparing for the worst. You know, you know, aside from these more extreme examples, there were a lot of problems where we didn't know how to appropriately greet each other. Um, you couldn't, you didn't know how to maybe cue or interact in these different spaces that there were new restrictions around social distancing. Uh, politeness serves this signaling role. It's meant to facilitate cooperation, to communicate to others. There's this expressive dimension there. So when you can't or you don't know how to be polite correctly, um, there's this potential for closure, this uh, potential to, you know, see increased tensions and social, um, you know, lack of cohesion, I guess. And I guess if I may add something uh, to what Steve just said, it's also important to remember, though, that politeness has this signaling function, but what it tends to signal is not necessarily you know, a strong commitment to viewing like your fellow citizens as free and equal all the time. So it signals a basic form of consideration for others, a very basic form of respect for others. But no, it, sometimes you hear people talking about so-called polite Nazis. So a, a Nazi or a neo-Nazi could potentially be polite, could potentially comply with norms of etiquette, good manners, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't make him or her a person who's committed to treating others as free and equal. They, they might be still committed to, to, to murdering other people, not to discriminating uh, against other people. And yet, no, politeness, uh, involves a very basic form of signaling that may apply even to this kind of people. But what, what we think really is that that's not enough in a liberal democracy. You, you really need more 
than politeness. Politeness is, is important. It provides the foundation for basic cooperation, but it's not enough. So we see we use a, a hierarchy between different dimensions of civility where politeness is at the bottom and then what we call public-mindedness is at the top. And under public-mindedness, we identify what we call moral civility, which involves refraining from discriminating against others, uh, refraining from using hate speech. Uh, and the other dimension of public-mindedness is what we call justificatory civility, which concerns justifying the political rules, the policies, the laws under which we live based on reasons that appeal to the common good, to the public interest, rather to our individual sectarian or partisan interests. There also seems to be a, an interrelationship between these two dimensions of civility that you're talking mm. about, doesn't there? So, right. uh, you know, I'm thinking of uh, the effect of inequality, both real and perceived inequality throughout the experience of COVID sort of arriving. And this was particularly pronounced in America where people had to pay to get tested. And so it was wealthy people who got tested or, you know, I, you know, I think about, um, just the intense backlash that seemed to greet every video that celebrities put together saying to people, you know, we can get through this or singing Imagine by John Lennon or whatever it is. I just remember that the, the visceral nature of the backlash against that said to me something very strange was going on here. It's one thing to be bored and cynical of celebrities, but actually people clearly aren't that bored and cynical about celebrities. Otherwise they wouldn't, you know, pay them so much attention on their social media platforms and so on. But there was something about celebrities taking this position that said, don't worry, guys, we're in this together and we'll get through it, that just made people angry, right? And so, in other words, this was, in some respects, a civil act on the part of those celebrities. They were trying to act in a way that was public-minded by spreading a message of support, um, and they were being polite, but they were greeted with an an uncivil response that I think was trying to say two things. Uh, we was exhibiting those both those dimensions of uncivility, right? It was, we're not going to be polite in response to you. We're just going to tell you how much we hate this video that you put up. Um, seems an odd pastime to me, but a lot of people seem to engage in that. But then secondly, we're going to do that because we are railing against the idea that there is some kind of public-mindedness or civil equality here. We see you as receiving some kind of special treatment and us as being denied it. And so civil society was kind of tearing apart at the seams in those peculiar um, and perhaps in some ways quite microscopic moments, but nonetheless moments that I, I personally found really quite telling. I think, that, I think that really speaks to this idea of what Derek Edivan calls like, you know, incivility as dissent, uh, where you've got these acts of what might be seen as impoliteness or this impolite response to maybe these celebrity messages that are meant to call attention to or highlight, you know, some other type of outcome or action or policy uh, that, that might be seen as unjust, unequal. Um, in some sense, they're calling attention to this idea that the virus and the subsequent policies affected different segments of the population in very different ways. And also, when it comes to things like you no know, vaccine passports or even just vaccination in general, we see a similar problem you know, uh, with the phenomena of so-called vaccines, no uh, vaccine selfies. Not many celebrities, many people on social media uh, post these pictures, and in many cases they have a good a good aim, you know, that they want to really persuade people to 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 be vaccinated and not to uh, resist vaccination, not to embrace vaccine hesitancy. So there's a public-minded goal there, which is, it's very much related to this, this idea of civility as public-mindedness. And yet, 
those boxes may often be perceived by many members of the public as rude or impolite and may therefore uh, not potentially cause closure in the debate regarding vaccinations. Uh, and likewise, now some people have argued that immunity passports or vaccine passports may also be uh, perceived as a, a source of potential tension between people because they send the signal that we are not all in this together, basically. So they can be very divisive and counterproductive in this sense. I find this really fascinating. I want to get on to the question of, of vaccine passports or immunity passports in, in just a moment. Can we just take a step back for a moment, though, uh, to the question of, I, I think you referred to it a moment ago, uh, Matteo, as sort of vaccine reticence. And this has been really interesting to me in exactly the same way. <clears throat> and we, I think we should all be grateful that the debate in Australia has not been as polarized, has not been as zero sum as it is in the US and various parts of Europe. Uh, but the there's not been the degree of the politicization, if you like, of, of science and of the science surrounding COVID-19, the way that it has been elsewhere here in Australia. But I think one of the things that is interesting to me is because there was a I'm, I'm not sure if it was solidarity. I'm not sure if it was a kind of misplaced or poorly expressed impatience that, dear God, we just want this to be over as soon as humanly possible. But there was a kind of you'd almost want to call it a kind of vaccine absolutism. There was a way of politicizing the importance of the vaccine and therefore throwing anybody that expressed anything like a certain hesitation, a certain reticence, all in the same camp. And then we would sort of affix to them the title anti-vaxxer. Well, it, uh, you, you and I did a show about this last year, about the about the detrimental effect of that kind of contemptuous rhetoric. Mm. But it, it it does strike me that one of the ways in which civility has in fact broken down over this time is in the contemptuous way that we have dealt with those who have expressed anything like reticence without realizing that in many portions of society, in many demographic or ethnic groups, there is something that Ruth Fagan refers to as a kind of justified suspicion, a justified uh, sort of askance glance at public political medical authorities telling them uh, you need to get vaccinated or you need. So, I mean, w one of the ways I think we can revive certain necessary habits of civility is in the rhetoric that we use to try to encourage people to receive the vaccine. But also I'm wondering if when you refer to this kind of justificatory dimension of civility, using language, using reasoning that's going to be as appealing to as many people as possible, whether, I mean, that must necessarily include a linguistic dimension as well, both in the language language that's used in terms of framing the justification, but also in the actual language that's used. In other words, something other than, say, English uh, that's used to try to encourage uh, forms of, of vaccination. It seems to me that those are two very necessary dimensions uh, of civility when we want to talk about the importance of civility in coming to the end of this particular moment. Yes, if I may respond, and then Steve, you can follow up perhaps. Um, I think this link between language and justificatory civility is very fascinating. As someone who's interested in the idea of linguistic justice, uh, among other things, I think that there's need for much more work on this. I've previously written on the Anglophone bias, if you want, of this idea of justificatory civility, you know, which starts from Rawls. It's very much central to Anglo-American political philosophy. And this has led to a situation in which when we talk about public justification for policies, we indeed uh, fail to take into account linguistic diversity 
the different also epistemic resources that different languages and linguistic groups can bring to the table when it comes to talking and discussing and deliberating about these policies. So public justification that neglects these differences, linguistic and epistemic and cultural, is very much limited and flawed. But if I may also add another point, I think we really need to be careful. Uh, you're right in pointing out the fact that we, we it's wrong perhaps to, to, to blame those who oppose uh, vaccination, so those who embrace vaccine hesitancy uh, all the time. It really depends on what kind of reasons they're putting forward. Of course, those who are appealing to flawed uh, scientific evidence should not re really be listened to in this debate. But those who appeal, for example, to the right to religious liberty and for religious reasons would like to be exempted from vaccinations, they might have a point, a point that needs to be taken seriously during public justification, even if we end up compelling them to be vaccinated. But public justification, justificatory civility, involves listening to this kind of arguments which are still public-minded. After all, we all believe in the value and importance of uh, religious liberty in a liberal democracy. So those who appeal to that value should be listened to, even if they end up losing the policy debate, if you want, even if the decisions eventually are against their interests. And I think this really speaks to the intersection, again, of this kind of politeness dimension, this public-minded dimension that includes the sort of moral civility as well as justificatory civility. So in the U.S., if you have what you know have been labeled, at least in the media, as this anti-vaccine protesters congregating around Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, you know, they're using these very, like, impolite means, like, you're a lab rat, you know, those who are, like, queuing to wait to receive their jab there, um, you know, so that becomes this kind of big problem in the way this politeness, uh, you know, it, it matters whether or not the kind of the logics, you know, for that impoliteness match up. If they were backing that up as well with, you know, epistemic, epistemically civil science-based explanations for why they are hesitant to get the jab, that's a different story. But if they're not providing that, you know, in effect, that's clearly an act of incivility. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that's right, Stephen. But, but just, I mean, just remember that oftentimes these kind of desperate countervailing or mm -hmm. vanguard responses. These are coming in a context in which these very same people have been assaulted week after week after week with satirical anti-vax memes mm -hmm. uh, that, that portray those who register any dissent at all as Neanderthals or as sort of, you know, anti-science uh, cave dwellers. So, uh, so I think, you know, oftentimes uh, this more desperate pugilistic form of a kind of misplaced conservatism or a misplaced anti-government reticence or even anti-science reticence, that comes in the context of a high-minded, what I can only refer to as a kind of progressive satirical sneering uh, mm -hmm. that seems to express the desire that these people would in fact go away, that they didn't have a place within our political community at all. And, and so I, I think, I, I'm, I'm not trying to draw anything like moral equivalence here, but here I think Politeness is nothing to be sneezed at. Anybody who spent any time in the American South, where I grew up, knows that politeness can be weaponized. I mean, dear God, you go to South Carolina and you've never... Uh, don't get me started. So I, I, I think politeness and tact in the way that we deal with one another, yeah. that's, there's, there's a high moral value to that. Can I, uh, 
I want to respond yeah. to that, if I may. But before that, I just better, for those who have just joined us, you are listening to The Minefield. Um, well, Lee Daly is my name. Scott Stevens, my co-host. Today, we're joined by Matteo Bonotti and Stephen Jeck, who both teach politics and international relations at Monash University. They're the authors of a new book called Recovering Civility During COVID-19. And we're talking about the civil and civilising, I suppose, dimensions of COVID-19, or perhaps the opposite of that. Mm. <laughs> so experience over the past year. I think what you just said there, Scott, is really interesting, and I think it's broadly right, but I think there is another way of looking at this that might illuminate mm. that, right? And that is, let's let's wholeheartedly embrace for a moment the parallel of COVID-19 and going to war, right? Which was the metaphor or the analogy, the simile, that was being used in the early period of this, right? It's like a war effort. And what happens in those war efforts is that people do feel a heightened sense of solidarity and belonging to their nation at the same time as there is heightened anger towards anyone who is seen as acting in a way that's traitorous. Yeah, it's true. Hmm. And so that's what you got here, isn't it? Like people who weren't observing lockdowns or whatever, there were higher incidences of dobbing. You know, this person's got people over to their house when they shouldn't, I'm going to tell the police. Um, that's the, It's loose lips sink ships, right? It, you, you, these things have to be policed because... The fact that we're all in this together, the basis of our solidarity also implies that any violations of that collective action are really serious, Hmm. right? So the solidarity makes the um, excommunication, if you like, more possible. And so I suspect while you're right, there's a kind of undertone of progressive sneering that, that goes on in the sort of vaccination discussions. There is something else as well, which is... We can't afford this. We can't afford for you to have these attitudes because that will undermine the entire war effort. We will lose the war because we need everybody else on board. And then I wonder, maybe this is a question for Matteo or Stephen, but what, what is the role of civility in a context like that? Because it's not the ordinary intercourse of social and political life. It's an emergency situation that requires and demands of us an emergency response. Yeah. Yeah, for me, uh, I think Steve previously mentioned this idea of incivility as dissent, which is an, an idea defended by some authors in the literature, especially Derek Edivan, a uh, political theorist from the UK. Uh, this is the idea that sometimes people, members of groups which are marginalized in society, may use impoliteness, bad manners to signal the injustice that they're suffering, signal some structural injustices. But here, when it comes to COVID-19, and the kind of things you were saying, uh, Walid, I think this normally comes from the bottom, but you could imagine public officials and people in positions of power using impoliteness and bad manners and swearing sometimes to signal exactly what you, what you were saying, the fact that it, it's wrong to act in certain ways. We are all in this together. We all need to contribute to public mindedness. And we found examples of this, and we talk about this in our book about members of the police force, other public officials using impoliteness to signal to people in the Australian context, for example, that really it's wrong not to comply with lockdown orders, it's wrong not to wear a mask and so on. And this is what normally is also referred to in the literature as public shaming. And public shaming is can be harmful uh, to its targets, but sometimes it may be morally permissible under certain conditions. So the whole question is to establish under which conditions it is permissible and a situation of emergency where there are morally significant and valuable goals to achieve may be one in which public shaming, uh, also characterized by impoliteness, may be useful, uh, if not necessary. 
and you and you saw a lot of people that maybe resisted some of these policies, and we might see very similar mobilizations again around vaccination. But say around the lockdown order in the United States, you know, middle of last year, you saw armed militias organizing and chanting "Lock her up" at the governor of Michigan. Um, you know, they were doing a drive them out of business in Operation Gridlock. You know, where you had armed militias. Um, creating these massive disruptions around the Capitol in Michigan. And they were adopting purposefully impolite and provocative, at least counter-normative behaviors to express what they saw as a violation of particular rights and freedoms that they held more paramount than some of the public safety concerns that they didn't think were fully or rightfully justified, you know, as these policies were enacted in Michigan. Yeah, look, I, I think that's that, that's absolutely right. And I don't think we should say that all forms of dissent are created equal, if I can kind of put it that way. Uh, there well, are, also are all s- forms of incivility created equal? So. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, a, that's, that's the better way of putting it. And I think we can also say that the behavior of armed militias in the United States, I mean, they come out of a very particular anti-government tradition that has its noble and its ignoble expressions. But but let me let me just take one step back to one dimension of civility that I don't think we've canvassed, but kind of undergirds a few things that we've talked about, and that's the centrality of sacrifice to the notion of civility itself. And you know, when we when we say that the pandemic has uh, is an emergency situation or it presents an existential threat, and so therefore there need to be higher degrees of compliance and fewer forms of dissent. I mean on one level, of course that's right. This isn't this isn't a casual debate. This is a debate that has the potential and has, in fact, cost lives. At the same time, though, on one side, civility is, if we think about civility as a high moral concept, it is the accumulation of the various forms of sacrifice that we are willing to make in order to create space within our common life for other people with whom we might not necessarily see eye to eye or with whom we might necessarily profoundly disagree. So my reluctance to say precisely what I think in the face of a moral or political opponent, that is a sacrifice of a degree of integrity, <laughs> uh, but for the purpose of something that is that is that I regard as being more important. But also, if we think about sacrifice as something that a majority does in order to accommodate the, the strong feelings or the strong convictions on the part of a minority, I think that's where there are certain forms of sacrifice that need to be accommodated, that need to be allowed for, even within public discourse. And just to bring us back to the question of immunity passports, which I think, quite frankly, is a moral monstrosity. There are forms of sacrifice to things that we believe we should we should be entitled or things that we really, really, really want and really can't find any more justification than the fact that we really, really want it. There are forms of sacrifice that we must, I think, wholeheartedly embrace in order for our indulgence in certain forms of normally permissible liberty, uh, lest those forms of permissible liberty come to be felt very strongly by others as being a form of of profound unfairness or injustice. So I think sacrifice here on both sort of just allowing space for others, but also going without certain things ourselves. I think this is a vital dimension to civility, and I'm not sure the extent to which that preparedness to sacrifice has translated well, has been retained or cultivated through the course of this pandemic. Yes, I think, Scott, you're absolutely right. I mean, sacrifice, or we could call it restraint, no renouncing certain practices or uh, refraining from using certain words. This is very much central to civility. Sometimes we are civil 
more by uh, not saying or not doing something than by saying or, or doing something. So that's very clear when it comes to good manners. No, we, we refrain from saying, from, from swearing or from saying something which may be perceived as impolite. But also when it comes to what we call, what Steve and I call moral civility, we are, we are civil if we refrain from using hate speech you know, or from painting a swastika on a, on a wall or from, from using hateful or discriminatory speech or behavior. But more generally, when it comes to justificatory civility, which is central to public discourse, sacrifice is very important. Now, uh, I guess many people would like to, to, to defend their preferred policies and laws by appealing to, their, to the deep uh, commitments and values, which could be religious ones, could be philosophical one, ones, but uh, that's not public-minded. Key to public justification, to justificatory civility, is making a sacrifice and, and trying to, to formulate your defense uh, for certain policies by appealing to reasons that everybody could accept. And in doing so, you might experience a sacrifice. And for, for this very reason, many people, many others, uh, political theorists and philosophers criticize justificatory civility and argue that it risks undermining the integrity, for example, of religious citizens who might have to uh, renounce you know, the deep religious commitments and try to come up with justifications for policies that perhaps they don't even truly believe in. Uh, mm. So that's a sacrifice, a costly one, perhaps, in a diverse society. I think I think a lot of this is also just this uh, that comes across in the justification of these policies. A lot of people will, will, will express this sacrifice or give up things when they are hearing about and then acknowledging and then acting on the recognition of the strains of commitment the policies will have. So as we're setting up vaccination policies that are tied to access, allocation, uptake, all these things, uh, that, that people need to recognize the disproportionate effect of, say, the ordering of vaccine uh, distribution might have on themselves. And in some sense, we're buying into that. Like myself, based on my age, risk, all those other things, I'll be, you know, very low priority in receiving that vaccine. But, you know, in the end, it's like the sacrifice. I, I am recognizing and buying into that policy based on the justifications they provided to me. And they, I mean, the policymakers and the government. Hmm. We're out of time, gentlemen. Um, I do like Scott's line that vaccine passports are an abomination. That sounds like a show. So um, <laughs> join us for that one sometime in the next few weeks, I imagine. Uh, we don't have time to go into it now, which is what makes it so delicious that he just dropped it in there like that. Matteo and Stephen, thank you so much for your contribution, uh, both in print but also uh, on the show today. It's been great to have access to you. Thank you again. Uh, Matteo Bernotti and Stephen Jeck uh, teach politics and international relations at uh, Monash University. They are the authors of Recovering Civility During COVID-19. Our guests for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're done for this week. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.